morning. So we are in our second week of the book of Malachi as we finish the year off in this uh, last prophetic book in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, which you can turn there and follow along with us as we walk through the text together. Uh, we introduced this last week, and we said that Malachi is made up of six different disputations. These are six different disputes that God has with his people. And we're in the second disputation, the second dispute that God has with his people. And this one specifically is a rebuke of the sacrifices that the people of God were bringing to the temple, of the sacrificial system that was being practiced at the time. Now, in order for us to understand what's happening in this rebuke, you really need to understand the positive version, what was actually the ideal version of what was supposed to happen, and at times in the history of Israel did happen when it was actually a beautifully worshipful system. So I want you to, to imagine a Levitical priest from the tribe of Levi who God has called into by the nature of the tribe that he was in and his calling on this man's life to be a Levitical priest. His father was a, Le uh, a Levite, a Levitical priest. His grandfather was a Levitical priest. He is carrying on this legacy of being a priest who helps the people worship at the temple. And every day he wakes up and he's joyfully praising God to own the calling of being a priest. And as he puts on his priestly garments, he's singing psalms and, and praising God that he gets to lead the people in worship. And then he puts on his priestly garments and he praises Yahweh, he praises God. And then he walks out into uh, the, inner part, the, the inner parts of the temple where he's going to facilitate worship, where he's lighting incense where he's ready to receive these sacrificial offerings and he's praising God, saying, I get to help the people of God worship. I get to help the people of God experience what it means to have a covering for their sin, that our sin can be atoned for through sacrifice. And he owns that beautifully and wonderfully. And then in walks a man who's from the Judean countryside. And this man is a man who has a farm. And on his farm, he has all types of livestock. And one day, he looks at his livestock, and he sees a bull, the most wonderful, beautiful, strongest bull that he could sell on the open market for a lot of money. And he looks at his hired hands, and he says, that bull right there, that's the one. That's the best of what I've got, and that is what I'm going to take to the temple. Tomorrow, we all go to the temple, family, work hands, all of us are going to the temple to offer this bull as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice for our sins. And the next day he takes that bull with his family and his, and his whole, uh, his people, and they start walking towards the temple and they're singing psalms of ascents. These are the psalms they would sing as they ascend towards the temple for worship. And they arrive into the temple and he takes that bull and he brings it to that Levitical priest, joyfully celebrating this wonderful offering, the best of what he has to bring to this priest who's joyfully worshiping, saying, is this what you've brought for sacrifice? And he says, yes, it's the best of what I have to offer. Praise God. This will be a wonderful burnt sacrifice. That is what it was supposed to be. And at times in the history of Israel, that's what it was. But that's not what it is when Malachi is prophesying. That's not what's happening at the temple. So what we're going to see in the second dispute that God has with his people 
is we're going to take a look at some of the corruption that had really seeped its way into the sacrifices, some of the corrupt practices that were happening at the time. As we look at this and their context, we ultimately will see really the root of this corrupted worship and really how that root, and I argue that rot, still exists even today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus that claims us and saves us and sets us apart to worship you and to delight in you and to glorify you. And I pray that you'd help us see the gift that it is to worship our King. And I pray that you would expose by the power of the Word of God, by the power of your Word, you'd expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and that we would receive your word and we'd walk this out in worship and repentance and faith and delighting in you because you're worthy of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verses uh, 2 through 5, as we walked through that last week, was the first dispute that God has with his people. And what we saw, if you weren't here last week, is that God, out the gate, before he spends the rest of this book rebuking the people of God, that out the gate, he reminds them that I love you. You are my people. I love you, O people of Jacob, O people of Israel. I love you. That his covenant love begins this book, and it's the foundation for what everything he's going to say next. But he needs his people to remember, I love you fiercely with this wonderful covenant love. And out of that love that he has for his people, he begins to rebuke him in the second dispute. Verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. So he's speaking in terms that were very crystal clear to the people of God. They would have absolutely understood this language and really the force of what he is saying. He says, Israel, I'm your father. Oh, people of God, I'm your, I'm your father. You are my son. You are my child. Where's the honor that is due to me? Like they, they understood the fifth commandment in ways that we just don't. The type of honor that a parent is, is deserved. He said, where's my honor as your father? He used the language of servant and master, which was language that was really uh, familiar to them. As an ancient Near Eastern world, they uh, it built into the very fabric of their economy and all the economies was this servitude system. And he says, where is my honor? Where's my fear? Where's my obedience? Where is this, O Israel? What you have shown is that you don't fear me. You don't honor me. You actually despise me, which is a, sh a sharp rebuke. I mean, if we, if we received a rebuke like that, like if your boss called you in the office, end of year review, laid out all your work for the year, and then said, you know, by your work, what I can so clearly see is that you hate me, that you despise me. That's what your work shows. If you, if you heard that, <laughs> I mean, that would be the start of a very scary moment. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> you've got my attention now. Let's talk. Like, that's a strong rebuke. And he says, what you have shown is that you despise my name. And this is ratcheted up even more for a culture that understands honor and shame more than we do. So he calls them to account. And it continues in verse 6. But you say, how have we despised your name? So he gives their, their rebuttal. Well, wait, wait, how, 
How have we despised your name? They're incredulous. Wait, you're saying that we don't honor, that we don't fear, we don't... How? How have we despised your name, O God? And then God continues in verse 7, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Verse 8, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? So he answers them. You've polluted the worship. You've polluted the offerings. And specifically, you've done this by offering blind and lame animals for sacrifice. Now, that's rooted in the Old Testament law, right? So Leviticus, or, uh, Deuteronomy 15.21 says, talking about sacrifices, but if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Leviticus 22.22 says, Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So clearly in the law, and you might wonder, okay, it's in the law, sure, but why? Like why is that a big deal? I mean, it, it's a blood sacrifice, it's an animal. What does it matter what condition it comes in because it's going to be slaughtered? The reason this is important, and anytime we're approaching the Bible, anytime we're approaching teachings, is try to understand why those teachings are in place in the first place. Okay? And what is clear here is that it shows the heart behind the sacrifice. What they are bringing shows the heart behind their worship. Because sacrifices are supposed to be, and I know this is going to blow our minds, sacrificial. It's supposed to cost. It's supposed to cost you something. And, and this isn't costly worship at all. I want you to imagine... We get closer to Christmas, and there's end-of-year Christmas parties. I want you to imagine that your, your boss says, you know, you guys have had a stellar year. It's been a great year for the company. I want to reward y'all with a Christmas party, like the most epic Christmas party we've ever had. And then you show up, and it's a Christmas party that has wonderful food and wonderful drink. It has a great band. I mean, it's just a night that you are certainly going to talk about in the office for years to come. This is, I mean, he's, he's, he's giving out Christmas gifts and bonuses, all types of stuff. It's a wonderful Christmas party. And he just tells him, it's because I love y'all. We're, we're taking some of our, our profits this year and we're blessing you. This is what you've earned. Congratulations. And then the next week, you get your paycheck. And you look at your paycheck and it's about $1,000 less. And you're like, wait, What? You go to the accountant, you say, hey, listen, I'm short $1,000. And the accountant says, oh, yeah, that's for the party. It's, it's, it, everyone that came out of their paycheck this year, it's for the party. Your joy for, for that gift that was being brought to you in the party is now wrath because you've been robbed. You would have just taken the $1,000. That's what's happening here. It's, it's the presentation of a sacrifice, and it's not a sacrifice. A blind animal is not sacrificial at all. It's not a gift at all, because that blind animal could not be sold for anything on the market. It's worthless. I mean, if you try to go and take that blind animal and sell it in the marketplace, the moment that that ram, like, just rammed its head into the wall and fell over, homeboy who's trying to buy it just lifts it up, looks at its eyes and says, it's blind. 
This is worthless. You're trying to defraud me. This means nothing. It would be a deep dishonor. And the people, deep down, they know this. You know how they know this? Because of how God really puts this into context in the very next phrase. He mentions the Persian governors. So they're still ruled at this point by the Persians. He mentions really the Persian governors that were ruling over them. He says, with that blind offering that you're bringing, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? He says, try passing off these blind sacrifices. Try passing off these lame animals. Try passing that off to one of the governors, one of the rulers who you can see. Try passing that off and see if that gift gets you anywhere. Be like trying to bring your Christmas gift in for your boss, like a good, a good boss who doesn't like do a bait and switch with the party, like an actually good boss. You bring in your Christmas gift, and it's a half-eaten tray of cookies and like a, you know, half open drank bottle of two buck chuck from Trader Joe's that's like a week and a half old that's now like not even barely cooking one and it's like here's your gift you'd never do that we'd never present that to somebody who has influence in our life no chance it would be a great dishonor your boss would get that and be like what in the world is this trash and I've got my eye on you it's just we would never he said you would never present this blind animal to a governor to a governing official You would never try to pass this off as a gift. How low the people of God must have thought of him, must have thought of their God that they could try to present these animals with the appearance of sacrifice, with the appearance of worship, when really they're keeping the best animals for themselves. They're keeping the best of what they have for themselves. And God, the God who brought them out of captivity, the God who's forgiven them, the God who loves them, sees this and he rebukes it and he continues in verse 9 he says and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you says the Lord of hosts verse 10 oh that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain I have no pleasure in you says the Lord of hosts and I will not accept an offering from your hand So he continues this rebuke, this charade, the appearance of godliness in bringing worship. And God just says, if just one of you priests, if just one of you had a zeal for me, had a zeal for the law, had a zeal for what is good, which next week we'll spend the rest of this disputation, we'll spend talking more about the priesthood. But right here, he's just like, if just one of you had zeal for my law and for me, that you would stand up and you would shut the doors of the temple and say, no one else comes in here. That you douse the flames of sacrifice and say, nothing else gets sacrificed in this altar. If just one of you would stand up for righteousness, if just one of you had a zeal to do what is good and would shut the doors. But there's none among you that are doing this. None of you are standing up to end this charade, this farce, this fakery. And God continues, verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So God reminds them who they're trying to con. 
He reminds them who they're trying to trick. I am the God who, amongst all the nations, all peoples from the farthest stretches of the eastern sky where it rises to the farthest skies in the west where it sets, everywhere across the world is what he's saying. I will be worshipped. Incense will be offered. That's the picture of worship. Worship will be offered amongst all the nations. Do you know who you're trying to con? Do you understand who you are trying to trick? I'm the God over all peoples. And one day you're going to see me worship amongst all the nations. And you think that you can bring this type of charade before me. What a travesty. Here is what the people fail to see. God doesn't need their sacrifices. God doesn't need their worship. God doesn't need the temple. He didn't need any of this. God is inexhaustible. He will be worshipped amongst the nations. He, he doesn't need this worship, but they believed they could bring their worst and pass it off as their best. They believed they could come to the temple with this charade, and it was all going to be good. And God says, you don't know who you are worshipping. You don't know who you are conning here. And he continues in verse 12, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Which, what he just said was, is not only are you doing a charade, not only is all this fake, you're bored with it. You're, you're bored. What a weary, what, how weary is this? He's like, you're bored with this con. And you can even picture that, like just day in, day out. The priest who doesn't care about his calling, just doing it, it's a job, just puts on his priestly garments and walks out there and says, all right, what you got next? Uh, yeah, that animal looks good. Yep, bit in there, drop your money off of the, of the offering plate. Like if just day in, day out, just bored with it. And God is incensed by this. You're, not only is it a charade, you're bored with it. And then it gets worse. He says, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? So not only are these lame and blind animals and they're bringing their worst, not only is everyone just kind of bored with this charade, there are even people who are bringing sacrifices that they took by force which means they're the kind of people that had a field and they saw their neighbor's ram wander into their field and they said, that's a nice one. I'll take that for myself. That'll be the one that I offer at sacrifice uh, at, at the next temple festival so I don't have to get rid of any of my own. What a great deal. And the ram wanders in. He takes it into his fold and his neighbor comes out and says, have you seen my ram? It's about yay high. It's got spots on it. Oh, there it is. Oh, you found it. So, oh, thank you so much. And he says, nope, it's mine now. Takes it by force and then thinks that he can go and offer that as a sacrifice to God. It's like, are you kidding me? Do you know who you're trying to con here? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? This is how corruption had seeped into the people of God who either did not read the Torah, did not read the law, or read it and did not care, but just said, this is what we do. We're going to continue bringing these sacrifices. That's what we do. And God ends this first half of the disputation, the first half of the dispute in verse 14. He said, cursed be the cheat 
who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So God calls them cheats. You have cheated me out of what is rightfully mine. God owns everything. Everything belongs to God. Everything. I mean, we're very individualistic. We're very, you know, capitalistic culture. And we say, I earned this. No, God gave this to you. You are a steward. We are stewards of what God has given us. We are co-reigning with God on this earth, bringing dominion to this earth. But that ain't yours. It's God's. And, he, and he's calling this out. You've cheated God out of what he so rightfully deserves. But I will get my glory amongst the nations, and the nations will fear me. So that's the first half of this. And you got to ask the question, like, what? Why? Why did they think they could do this? What's going on in their brain, when they're, in their soul, when they're actually doing this? Because we don't give. There's not, like, further verses that explain exactly why they did this. We can tell a little bit from the context, and I think you could read into this and kind of see kind of the most plausible reasons. But I think one of the big ones is, is that bringing a sacrifice is costly. It just is. It costs money. It costs time. It costs the energy of your... Like it, it, that, it's costly. So I think part of them really just loved what they had, and they, they love this world. They love earthly treasures. And being able to pass off a lame sacrifice was just easier. I think it's also very possible that what they really wanted to do was to give the appearance of godliness, to give the appearance of worship, to give the appearance of what it looks like to be a holy man of God, a holy woman of God, that they'd pass this off because they like the appearance without actual sacrifice, without actual worship. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at really the priests and their role in this. But this picture that he ends with here in verse 14 is something we need to sit in because what happens sometimes is that we can read things like this and distance ourselves because it feels foreign to us. Because spoiler alert, next year between songs, we're not going to bring out a ram and cut its throat. Like that's, I know that's going to shock you. But that's just not what we do here. And there's a reason we don't do that. First off, it'd be wildly weird. Uh, second, Jesus fulfilled that entire system. So people wonder, why, why, don't you, what, what, why, why does the Old Testament law not continue like it? Because Christ. Christ becomes the final sacrifice fulfilling that system. Like the, the whole book of Hebrews helps poetically and wonderfully help, helps capture this idea. The reason we don't offer sacrifices is because Jesus was the final sacrifice. That everything in this system, this offering of unblemished rams and unblemished bulls and unblemished uh, pure offerings, this was all meant to point forward. That was the main goal. It was a shadow of what was to come. It was ultimately pointing forward to the unblemished, perfect sacrifice of Christ. When Christ comes and fulfills this with his death on the cross and his blood is shed for the sins of the people. For the rest of time, we point back to the spotless lamb that died in our place in Christ. So that, that when we read this, though, it feels foreign because we're so far removed from it because we don't do this. It feels ancient. It feels foreign. And it's easier for us to read this and look at the people of God and even have the mindset of how wicked is this? 
How broken were the people thinking they could do something like this? Which honestly is a little bit of a historical, a historical fallacy. Like that's just what a lot of people do when they look back at history. People look back in history and say, I would have never done that back then. I would have never, I would have acted justly. I'd have been a warrior for what is good. And it's like, mm, probably not. Because you're a sinner and your heart's wicked and you're more influenced by the, by the culture of the time, just like every single human being for the last thousands of years. So no, you're not like some star-spangled awesome example that would stand out. No, you're just, you're just not. And, it's, and we'll do that sometimes. You just read this and just kind of separate yourself from it all. And it doesn't do it reflectively. We, so the way that we should read this is to understand the truth of what's happening in this text and to actually look at our own hearts and ask some questions of ourselves, of what's happening in our hearts when we worship the God. In what ways do we worship the Lord that has the appearance of godliness, but in actuality, it profanes the name of our God? Like, in what ways do we bear the name of Christ, but our actions and the way that we live show something different in a way that God says, by the way that you are living, it shows that you despise my name. So the question here is, how do we worship, though not in the same form, but actually has the same kind of substance and same heart? That's the bigger question that's at play for us as we read this text. Now, there are a few different words for worship in the New Testament, a few different words in the Greek that help capture worship. The, the two main uses are a type of worship that is praise, singing, kind of prostrating yourself, humbling yourself before God. So the main use of worship in the New Testament is that picture, this praising of God, like the songs that we just sang, okay? That's the first main use of worship in the New Testament that you see over and over again. It's this humbling, joyfully praising the Lord. The second main use is service. It's the type of life worship, how we honor the Lord with our lives, how we worship the Lord with our lives and how we live our lives. So praise and life. And those are the two main uses of worship in the New Testament. Then we should look at how they worship with the system, ask those same questions of our own lives within those two categories. And that's what I want to do for a moment. I want to look at how we might have the same folly, the same error when it comes to praise worship and life worship. So first, how might we be a people that have the same sinful patterns that the Israelites did and how we praise and bring our praise and worship to God. So, some of us might worship boldly on a Sunday with hands raised, singing loudly, and what we're really doing is we're more worried about how people see us, how they see us lift our hands, and how they hear our voices, that we know the words of this song. And, and, and what we're doing there is we're more concerned about how we look as opposed to actually worshiping God for who he is. And that makes us the center of worship. This is a really big danger for those who lead in worship. Because one of the problems is, is that when you lead in worship, sometimes it can be so performative. You can so focus so much on, on, on the technical aspects and how you sound and if we're on beat and all, all the different 
technical aspects of worship that becomes performative that you lose the thread on what it's actually supposed to be, helping lead the people of God in all of who Jesus is and worshiping our King for who he is. I mean, years ago, uh, Raz, this is a quote that he loved. I don't remember where it came from, but basically the, the idea that came out of it was is that if the, all the electricity was taken out of the building, could we still worship God like we're supposed to? And it's like, ooh, that's, man. So there's a performative aspect that gets in the way that we're not actually thinking and worshiping God like we're supposed to. Some of us go through the motions of Sunday worship, sing the songs, and we listen to the sermon, and the whole time it's happening, the whole hour and 15 minutes it's happening, or 90 minutes depending on who's preaching and how many jokes he's got to tell, the whole time that's happening, your mind is elsewhere. You're thinking about things from the week, last week. You're thinking about things you got to do today. You're thinking about things that are coming up. And you go through this, just checking the box and sing, King of Kings, cool, pray. All right, sermon, cool, all right. I'm doing that. And then you're out. And you're just going through the motions. We're just going through the motions, checking boxes as opposed to seeing what we have here as a gift, a gift that God has given us that we get to come together with the people of God and worship him and delight in him for who he is because he's wonderful and he's worthy of it. It's good for our souls to do that. Another way this can happen, and less can happen in our church because of how we do giving, but there can be a little bit of, I, I, part of worship is I'm bringing my offerings and I want to be seen as someone who gives. I want to be seen as a giver which the offering plate could make that a bigger temptation, but we've robbed you of that. So you got to do it at these boxes in a way that would be more performative, which doesn't happen as much, but it's the heart behind it. Is I, I want to be seen as someone who's generous, who's seen as someone who brings their offerings before the Lord. And it's not about actually sacrificially giving God joyfully. This is what we're bringing to you, but it's about being seen. There's a lot of different ways this can play out. The heart behind it is all there. It's a charade. It's checking the boxes. It's being seen. It's not actually worshiping like we're supposed to. And second category of life worship, this honor and worship that we're supposed to have, that we're supposed to give to God in every aspect of our lives, that's a bigger one that many of us fall into. And it's especially hard because we're in the South, and Southern Christianity is just, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people in the South will claim to be a Christian. Like people from the North move down here and they're like, there are churches everywhere. Do y'all not see this? This isn't normal and it's not. <laughs> there are like more churches per capita in the South than almost anywhere in the world. And what happens is, is that Christianity is just who we are. It's what we're supposed to do. And what happens is, is that anyone claims to be a Christian in the South and what happens if, if there is any bit of regularity in Sunday worship, that Sunday becomes the pinnacle of what it means to be a Christian. That this is it. This is the height of it. But it doesn't actually show up in the other aspects of life. It doesn't show up in the regular repentance and walking this out in community. It doesn't show up in reading the scriptures and being convicted. It doesn't sing up in the prayers and humbling ourselves before the Lord. And it's this life that says, I'm a Christian but the rest of life doesn't back it up at all. Now, the way this happens in the South, profaning the name of the Lord, claiming the name of the Lord, and acting very different, it shows up in business practices 
shows up in using the name of God to gain social capital with others or business capital with others. That's why when I see a Jesus fish on a bumper, on a, 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 a business card, I get a little nervous because I'm a little boy. You know, I, I used to, so many of you know this, I did real estate uh, bivocationally. I was a pastor and a real estate agent for years. And now I'm just full-time here. I still have my license, but uh, for years, my license is at the same place. It's at a brokerage. Um, and my brokerage, I love. Like, it's just, I love them. It's a rowdy group of people. And it's kind of known to be a rowdy group of people. They just, they're, they're good at what they do, but they have fun. <laughs> and it's a rowdy crew. And I, for years, would go in the office, and they knew I was a pastor. And, you know, just some jokes that kind of come with that that, that are fun. But they really, I think they appreciated me. I'm not a moralist. I don't tell people how to live. I tell them who to live for. I tell them about Jesus, but I'm not going to tell them how to live. So you can live your life, do whatever you want. And I, and I operated in there for years. And one of the things that I found incredibly frustrating is that there was uh, another brokerage that really built their name off Christ. They kind of built their branding off of Jesus. And what was wildly frustrating was they also had a reputation from some of their agents doing some shady stuff. And I heard our guys talk about that brokerage and make fun of them. Oh, yeah, they're Jesus-y, real Christian over there. And they did some of the most unethical things in the market. And it just drove me nuts because I had a bunch of rowdy group of people, but they did things ethically and right. And as a Christian, I'm there and I'm trying to represent Christ. And I got agents across town just doing stupid, foolish, wicked things. Furiates me. And that mess happens all over the place. People that bear the name of Christ, that use the name of Christ to advance their career or their, 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 their resume in a Christian culture, and it's wickedness. And it profanes the name of God. He must despise the name of God to practice like that. So it can happen the way that we live our lives in the business world, how we work. It can happen in the offerings that we bring to the church. So the, the money that you bring to the church, if it's, if it's given off of stuff that's stolen from other people, stolen from the government, and what's owed to the government, stolen from, from any, anyone or anything, and we bring that and say, God, here's your gifts, here's your offerings. That aspect of our life has not been sanctified. It's not, Jesus isn't working to show that's not worship. That's a charade. It's not breaking your heart to do what is actually good. Honestly, with this category, it's just, it's anything that claims the name of Christ, anything that simply, that, that simply has the appearance of godliness, has, the, has Jesus slapped on top of it, but actually is not backed up at all. Or maybe it's the other kind of person that, that has the mindset of, I'm just, I'm doing good so I can get into heaven and I'm just getting kingdom credits through just the claiming to be a Christian and doing the things and whatever, but it actually isn't backed up by a life where the heart has been so, so changed and captured by Christ that though we walk sometimes in sin and make mistakes, we're walking that out in repentance and worshiping and delighting in him. If it's not that, then you're just going to the motion and you're checking boxes and it doesn't honor God. There's two main aspects of worship, whether it's praising here on a Sunday or the lives that we live. It really shows our hearts that we're not all that much different than the Israelites. Whether it's we're doing it to be seen as holy. I'm checking boxes so I can be seen as one of the good ones. 
or if it's just the idea of, of, well, it's just what we do. We're Southerners and we're Christians. Therefore, we just, we do the things. When it's actually not a vibrant faith that costs. A vibrant faith where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. To deny yourself and follow me. That the moment that Christianity becomes you having to be someone who's repenting of sin or being obedient to his mission or being sacrificial with your life towards others or the moment that there's an actual cost, you're like, I don't know about that. It's a little overly religious. That's just a little bit too much for me. Well, this is what we do, and that's the heart of how we approach this. And the reality is, is our approach to God, what, what, what's really revealed in how we actually approach life is that sometimes the way that we, earn, the way we, that we, that we live our lives earnestly for things that we can see, for governors that oversee us, for, for, for employers that oversee us, for the people that actually can bring the, the change we can see in our lives, that we'll do more earnestly for those worldly things than we will for God. And it reveals what's happening in our hearts. And it reveals that any of the practices that we bring here on a Sunday or in groups or whatever is more of a charade. Brothers and sisters, Ecclesiastes is correct. There's nothing new under the sun. We, 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 we repurpose and we repackage the same old practices, the same old things. We're just like the Israelites. And there was a prophet that was raised up to help them see the error of their ways, that Malachi is trying to help them see, don't do this. Don't do this. Here, don't, don't, don't engage in these practices. And we have a better prophet, a better priest, and our great high priest in Christ, and a better king in Jesus, who came and shed his blood for us and offered sacrifice, blood to cover our sins, and his perfect righteousness to stand for us, and then invites us into that kind of faith where we put all of our hope in Christ and then calls us into a worship that Romans 12, 1 teaches. I appeal, you there, appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Though we place all of our hope in the finished work of Christ, he changes us and then sets us apart to present our lives as a living sacrifice to God. We might lay down our lives to follow him and to worship him and to delight in him. And it would show up in all the different aspects of how we sing and how we live and what we do. But I'll finish back with verse 14. When the Lord says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Just remember, God doesn't need this. He didn't need this. He's going to be worshipped amongst the nations. He's going to be glorified. Every knee is going to bow to him. He didn't need this. And, and if this ever becomes a charade, if, this ever, if we are ever the church that preaches a gospel and doesn't live, if we're ever a church that says all the right things but that doesn't actually back it up with our lives, if all this just becomes checking boxes and just performative, then, man, let's close the doors. Let's lock it up. I'll go back to selling real estate. I mean, just, we'll lock the doors. We'll sell this building off. That educational wing, you can make condos out of that thing. This could be a nice little bar and, 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 and music venue. I mean, we'll, let's close up the doors and say, 
move on. Because God doesn't need a half-hearted people that are just going through the motions. He wants a people who lay down their lives because we love him so deeply and we realize eternally what, that he's worth it and we'd be a people that back that up with our lives. Not as perfect people because we're going to make mistakes, but where we see our sin, we're confronted by the good news of the gospel and we trust in him as our only hope and we walk this out worshiping him and honoring him. But if that ain't it, we'll close the doors and move on. But there are four elders here that are never going to let that happen. First, their own lives, and then as we lead forward, we want to be a people who don't treat this as a charade, but take the Lord seriously. And the good news is God loves us enough to reveal this to us. God loves us enough to be able to reveal what's happening in our hearts. Stay with me. He loves us enough to reveal what's happening in our hearts so that we can go to our community groups this week and confess sin and confess where we're falling short, confess where we've treated this like a charade, that we can be a people that actually are changed by Jesus and become better worshipers, become better people who delight in him. But also, there might be some of you where all this has ever been is going through the motions, and all this has ever been is checking boxes. And I want you to see so clearly this morning, God loves you enough to confront you and to call you into an actual, real, sacrificial faith in him. Don't treat this like a charade. Don't treat this as checking boxes. He's actually worth it and he's good and when you truly discover who our God is and you lay your life down for him you'll see that everything that comes after that is wonderful and is delightful and is worth it let me pray Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help convict us of sin. I pray that you'd help us remember the good news of the gospel that saves us so that we can be a people that actually worship you we can be a people that actually laid on our lives for you because it's good, because we gain more of you, because you died on a cross for our sins and you have a heavenly home that awaits us and that's worth it. It's worthy of our lives. May we be a people that worship you, not half-heartedly, but truthfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Man's gonna come up. And as we prepare to worship, take a few moments to just breathe and pray and remember who this God is. Remember who he is and that he's worthy, that he will be worshiped amongst the nations. Every knee is going conf- to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. That is who our God is. He's worthy of it. So prepare your hearts to respond in worship. But if you don't know him, The invitation is there for you to actually know him and to surrender him. And for this not to be something that you check off, but to be a means of delighting in him because he's worthy of it.